Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we seek to make sense of the recent New York Times articles about the president's tax returns. We also explore the U.S. tax system, in particular, who benefits, who doesn't, and how the tax code reflects and doesn't reflect our goals and priorities. My guests are Annette Nellen, professor in taxation at San Jose State University, and Matthew Gardner, senior fellow at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. information reported in the New York Times. Let's start there. What do you think was the most consequential or significant piece of information in that article? Or was this not a surprise? Was this just, well, that is kind of the way it is for people who have great wealth? Um, Annette, if we could start with you. One, I guess, a surprise is just how much tax information they had, because apparently they've got several years of returns, plus of his entities. Not unusual for someone with a big real estate enterprise, even a smaller one, that they will often put each piece of real estate in a different entity, plus other revenue streams that he has, like his clothing line or golf courses, to actually obtain all of that is a little puzzling as to where they maybe actually got that. Uh, But it sounds like they have a lot of information, and then they're using that to also look at other public documents, like they noted that, gee, one return showed a consulting fee of some six-digit figure, and they saw that on the uh, daughter's disclosure form with the federal government. So they are trying to piece some things together. So just the amount of data, but it's still like, you kind of almost want to look at it yourself to get a sense of what's really all (laughs) involved there. Yeah, real estate companies will tend to have some losses, but he has other streams of income. So that is a little puzzling given the size of some of those other streams that he was still sheltering even that with real estate losses or or loss carryovers. Matthew, what to you was the most consequential, surprising, interesting, or intriguing fact about the New York Times article? The thing that wasn't remotely surprising was that uh, the president appears to have paid no income taxes in multiple years. The thing's been asserted before by the same crew of New York Times uh, reporters, and he's never really denied it. What's surprising and new and really interesting to me about this report is that we're learning a little bit more about how he's achieving it. And in a couple of cases are getting some indications that the means he's using to achieve this zero tax result, these low effective tax rates, might not be entirely acceptable in the eyes of the IRS. So, you know, it raises important questions about how this process is working, why an IRS audit has been going on for so long, why the IRS may not have gotten involved so far, as is the case with these hair deductions or the consulting fees for family members. I hesitate to say illegal because the line between legal and illegal is so hard to police in these cases, but but there might be some issues with the acceptability of some of these tax breaks. And I guess the second surprise has less to do with tax than with income, right? Like the story the president has always told is of a man who is very rich, makes a lot of money, and manages to show the IRS that he's not making a lot of money, but wink, wink, nod, nod, he's really doing very well. There's some indications from some of the data points that he might not be doing that well at all. A staggering amount of debt coming due, to hear the authors of the New York Times article tell it, of a sort that seems basically incompatible with this idea that the guy is fiscally doing very well. You mentioned the acceptable versus legal, and I would add versus ethical. 
And I think also there's the PR aspect that the president has sold. I'm smart because I don't pay taxes. When is it savvy? And when are we crossing lines? There was talk of a, a very large home somewhere in New York where apparently the sons have said, oh, yo, that's our like our family home. We like to hang out there. But apparently they were writing off expenses of that. That's a large home. It's very expensive to keep it up. So I think it is example of not separating the business from the personal. And from what the sons are describing, it sounds like that's all personal, but large deductions being claimed there, which would be improper. We do occasionally see every year a couple of cases like that. Usually where someone's got some big home they're trying to sell and say, well, I really was trying to rent it out. It was a business property and they may or may not win on that. But when you're talking about personal use of a property and writing off the expenses, I mean, it's just wrong. And I think, you know, significant dollars there, I mean, it still pales in comparison to what the other dollars are in depreciating property. But this looks like one where there's just not proper, something being used personal and business. You need to separate that. Matthew, how do tax professionals navigate those challenges and issues? And how do you make determinations in an effort to keep people honest in the tax area? Maybe a little easier on the individual tax side for folks with straightforward wage profiles. The minute you get into the business side of things, there's this question of separability between personal and business expenses. And, you know, haircuts are a great example of that, right? The president, before he was president, uh, obviously needed hair care to, to look the way he looks on, on TV. And, but maybe he didn't need $70,000 worth of hair care and pancake makeup. So how do you draw that distinction? Uh, everything I've seen from uh, the tax community suggests that the rebuttable presumption is that those are basically personal expenses. Certainly shouldn't be as completely as deducted as they appear to have been. But yeah, I think it's important to recognize that there are always gray areas. And what we can say, observing from a distance, is that some of these things really appear to be kind of shady, uh, but that's obviously not a evidence of guilt. But yeah, anytime you have someone with a business hat and also a personal hat at the same time, the law basically throws up his hands a little bit and said, you have to make a judgment. You have to provide us the information we need as the IRS to figure out what the boundaries are. So there's a lot of leeway there for unethical people to push those boundaries. And I think that that's what we can say uh, in this case. The haircuts, the uh, the property that may or may not have had uh, too much property tax deducted for uh, what was essentially a personal use, the consulting fees to a relative, none of these things are obviously illegal. None of them are obviously even wrong. But they each have a whiff of impropriety that is probably due in part to the person that's related to. And they each leave open the taxpayer discretion where there's a lot of room to maneuver. This becomes an especially salient point when you think about the administrative capacity or, or lack thereof that the Internal Revenue Service currently has. A fully funded IRS would probably command a little more respect from the folks who are making these decisions, these allocations, these representations about the personal business split of expenses. When you know or when you believe that the IRS simply doesn't have the capacity to check up on you, I think that possibly encourages people to be a little more aggressive in how they describe these things. So yeah, these lines are vague. They're not always straightforward. The tax law is full of gray areas. But an adequately funded IRS could do an awful lot to shed light on some of those gray areas. Who decides how to fund the IRS? That's Congress. And also how the tax code is 
decided what exactly are the rules and who's making those rules. Then that also gets to the question of why is real estate income treated so differently from other types of income. The point of what I'm asking is that Congress has a lot of uh, decision-making power here in how things go with regard to funding, with regard to the tax code. So I want to talk a little bit about how things have shifted and why we're where we are with regard to our tax code. And that- Real estate, it's often you know one big investment, like you buying an office building, we're going to be renting this out. The building itself can be depreciated, depreciated over 39 years. So that alone is a significant amount of uh, annual deductible expense. Typically, it's been financed, so you've got interest on that. You've got just the operating costs, and that can total more than what the rent is. So just something about the nature of the very significant asset in that business. Now, over the years, Congress has enacted some limitations. If you're a passive owner in this, you can only deduct the loss if you have what's called passive activity income, like another rental property or some business you don't materially participate in that's producing income, and you can offset that. Uh, They've also got limitations on you can't deduct more than what you have invested in that um, activity. And that's probably something also the IRS is is looking at. Did he operate within all of those uh, particular rules? And then even the legislation that President Trump signed into law in December 2017 has another limitation that primarily actually probably hits real estate because they do tend to produce a lot of losses that there'll be a limitation on what you can claim in a particular year. And the excess, like for a married couple, the excess of this loss over $500,000 becomes an operating loss for the next year. So it's just you know pushing that out a bit. So they have tried to do some things. But again, I think he has a lot of real estate investment, you know, maybe more than you know, most people have. So that's just producing a lot of the uh, losses. But I think also probably unusual, he does have other income streams apparently or had. For potentially the average citizen or the person not of great wealth who's paying taxes, well, that's frustrating. I'm paying so much in taxes. Why is this person not? Or wow, how great is that? Do you think the average person is uh, being treated fairly in the tax code Or are there ways to do things a little differently? One way of thinking about this is whose interests are consulted, whose interests are elevated when tax legislation is considered. I think that's one window into who benefits from the tax system, who's seen by the tax system. And one of the really remarkable things about uh, the CARES Act, the, uh, the COVID legislation enacted in March, is that the thing was narrowly geared toward helping individuals who'd lost their jobs, who were on unemployment, uh, businesses forced to shut down just to keep people on payroll and to keep afloat during a very difficult economic time. And yet, when the dust settled on the CARES Act, one of the most expensive provisions in the law on the individual tax side was a suspension of the loss limits, temporary suspension of the loss limits that uh, Professor Nealon just mentioned, which by definition could not result in a dime's worth of tax benefit for a married couple with non-business income under $500,000. So people like me were asking, well, how on earth was this even on the table, let alone a priority to the exclusion of more unemployment benefits? And the short answer, I think, has to be that the folks who benefit from these tax breaks simply have more access. The interests of upper income taxpayers and of businesses and of anyone with an effective lobby 
tend to win out. And there aren't, sadly, uh, hugely effective lobbies for low and middle income Americans. So in that sense, I think uh, the system is inexorably tilted towards those who have the money to influence outcomes. Also concern is the complexity of the rules Perhaps the lawmakers don't fully understand them. The HEROES Act that the House actually passed in May would have reversed the one that Matthew was just talking about. But as Matthew says, if you look at the Joint Committee on Taxation report of what were the costs of the different provisions, you've got an economic impact payment that's benefiting over 120 million individuals, and you've got this loss limitation one they cut back. It's got to be only a few thousand people at the most and at the top level. And it's as astounding. It's almost like, I think maybe two thirds of what the other one cost. And like, why would that happen? What was going on? I hate to say this, but right now, and for some time, you've got Democrats pushing to get rid of this $10,000 salt cap when clearly the benefit will go to the people who pay the most state tax and are at the highest levels. It'll benefit top, not even like 1%, even half of the top 1%. What's the purpose? But even then, why is there no analysis on this proposal? Trump is not, I mean, we haven't seen the returns, but we do have at least two very high income people who have released their tax returns. That would be Mitt Romney years ago and Steyer in the recent, uh, so you can see what high income returns look like. And Mitt Romney's return, his itemized deductions just for property tax was $220,000. And you think, doesn't that hit the public as saying, I don't even make that much in three or four years. Yet that's what he deducted as property tax. Where's the discussion about what should the state and local tax deduction look like? Because certainly if you're running a business, you pay state and local tax and you have to pay it. So that should arguably be a business deduction. Corporations get to deduct their state and local tax. Why can't a sole proprietor? Why don't we fix it that way? But maybe Mitt Romney, if he makes a choice to live in multiple expensive homes, he should not deduct all that property tax. Where's that discussion? But these things, unfortunately, just don't take place. No, Annette, I really appreciate that point because sometimes I, too, feel like we're having the wrong discussion or we're not having the full discussion. We focus on something very finite. I don't necessarily think this is a Democrat-Republican issue either. I think it's an issue of of class more than anything. It's if you're of great, great wealth, you have access. And if you um, are not necessarily of great wealth, then maybe you don't have the lobbying powers, as Matthew, you said. I think it's important to get back to the foundation and remember, what exactly are taxes for? I mean, we have this really robust history from the Boston Tea Party of, you know, no taxation without representation. How do they define our priorities as a society or as a country? At their best, taxes exist to pay for the things that we can agree we want to collectively provide for each other as a society. The things that we can't provide on our own or that are better provided by the government on our behalf. Things as basic as defense, police, things as important as education and healthcare that you can't ask people to provide these things on their own because in many cases they're simply too too costly. And things that we want to ensure an equitable distribution of, again, education and healthcare, which many people would view as essential basic rights, are things that we decide we want to pay for through a tax system. Sometimes taxes get used for things other than raising money to change behavior by discouraging activities or encouraging activities, that's actually where things tend to run off the rail a little bit with the tax system. And sometimes they tend to get in the way of raising revenue. But at their best, they're a way of raising the revenue we need to pay for the services we all can agree on in a way 
that is both fair and sustainable. There's been sort of a universal agreement uh, since President Reagan said this aloud more than almost 40 years ago, that we should raise these revenues in a way that doesn't make poor people poor, that doesn't push poor people further into poverty, and that is basically equitable. You know, there's a lot we can agree on about how to raise revenues for these important goals, but I think that is actually a pretty universally shared value that taxes shouldn't make people poor. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about taxes with San Jose State Taxation Professor Annette Nellen and ITEP Senior Fellow Matthew Gardner. Gina, you mentioned goals. We should make sure the tax system at least supports and not detracts from whatever our economic, societal, environmental goals are. I'm not sure we've always articulated those well. In our federal system right now, we've got incentives for oil and gas. We've got incentives for clean energy. What's our goal? We've got incentives to help higher income individuals pay for college. Uh, what, what's the point of that? And we don't fully fund Pell Grants for low income folks. People claiming a large mortgage interest. I don't get any government subsidies. Yes, you do. <laughs> You've got a lot of them, but we don't talk about that well enough. We do not talk about taxes in K-12 education. We'll explain what the three branches of government are, but we don't explain how they get their money. And it's just ludicrous not to discuss that where that's obviously a very important civic duty to understand how that works and the effects of, of taxation and what would a basic tax look like versus what we're doing in our current system. It's got over 100 special rules in it that don't actually need to be there. Yes. When we don't name it and deliberately address it or talk about it, it tends to kind of stay in the background and people don't understand it. I agree that I would love to see us talk about tax system a little in K-12. The other kind of foundational question I want to ask is how has the tax code changed over the past, I don't know, 100 years? Um, I know that the effective tax rates for uh, everybody were much higher you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, how that reflects our priorities. Our moderate income tax started in 1913, and I think you had to have more than 20000 of income to even pay individual income tax. The rates were 1% to 6%. The corporate rate was a flat 1%. Uh, it wasn't until about early 1940s, World War II, where it became more of a mass tax, where more individuals were subject to that tax. We didn't have near as many credits or things that have been in, in the tax law. And when there's been times like tax reform of 86 under Ronald Reagan, oh, we want to lower the rates and get rid of a lot of these things. Well, after a few years, <laughs> they were back and even new ones were added. And that does kind of disguise, well, what exactly is my tax rate? Because I got these special deductions or credits or lower particular rates on certain things. So that is a problem. But you're right, the rates have been all over the board. In the 50s, they went as high as like 92 or 93%, but only for you know, the very, very high income folks at that time. Uh, most people weren't paying at 92%. Today, and actually Mitt Romney had campaigned on this, 49% of individuals don't pay tax. Now, he should have said they don't pay income tax, but people should have said, why? Well, because our income's too low. I think we should be you know, looking at the whole system. What should the rate structure be? What are appropriate uh, types of deductions? We have an earned income tax credit. Probably should be higher. Uh, President Trump's talking about, oh, we should index capital gains. I keep on thinking, well, maybe we should index low wages to you know, <laughs> deflate them because they're having come up with inflation and lower people's uh, tax bills. But again, these discussions just aren't taking place. There was a... Um, bipartisan committee that President Obama put together. I noticed the Republican platform actually makes a reference to it. They said, if you got rid of all these deductions, you might get down to maybe like a 6% rate or something. You would also, in doing that, all these special rules, they pick winners and losers. 
like mortgage interest deduction, a lot of benefits there for owning a home, does that cause us to overinvest in housing to the detriment of something else in our, our society? We don't really have those discussions. The largest spending in the tax law is that when your employer subsidizes your health insurance, that's tax-free to the employee. This costs $214 billion a year. Does it mean we're getting good health care? What about the people who don't get that benefit and have to fund all that out of their pocket? Can't those dollars be taken and allocated more broadly? Um, I think looking at some of these items, we could make the system more equitable, more neutral, not picking winners and losers, and perhaps have a lower rate, which would then people would be less inclined. Oh, I got to do some serious tax planning here. They'll say, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'll pay that you know, 14% rate, 20% rate, whatever that is. As Professor Nolan mentioned, we've gone more towards a, a mass tax. We've reduced top rates substantially. We've also, I think, had a gradual trend toward decentralization, moving away from federal towards state and local, moving away from tax towards non-tax. And so in terms of the way middle-income Americans experience the tax system, I think there's much more of a death of a thousand cuts thing going on where it's not just this big monolithic federal income tax, it's all the other state and local stuff, most of which tends to fall more heavily on low and middle-income families. There's also, there's been a worrisome trend on the business side away from taxing uh, corporate income uniformly. We're now in a place where I think it's fair to say that we're taxing roughly half of all corporate profits at the federal level a thing that everyone recognizes is goofy. Uh, some say we should tax none. Some say we should tax all of it. I would vote for all of it in a, in a uniform way. And as the professor has already indicated, because of the preferred status, the exalted status of tax spending, tax expenditures don't get any reviews. There's been this gradual expansion in the number of tax breaks in the law. So in the case of the corporate tax, it's now literally more loophole than law. And I think there are indications that it's been getting that way on the individual side as well. I would say there's been a trend more toward inequity, a lot of loopholes in, in the law that ought to be filled. President Trump has said, oh, I pay taxes. Are those the sales taxes and income taxes that we, we all pay? Which, of course, definitely hurt more for someone who makes less money, right? Because we're paying the same rate, but it's taking more of a bite out of what we do have. So are there other taxes he might be paying that we're not aware of? I mean, there's all kinds of taxes. I mean, he is certainly paying some property tax. He does get paid as president and payroll taxes come out and then he takes that and donates it to charity. But there were taxes that came out of that. Didn't get a lot of attention, but he theoretically moved from New York to Florida. Florida doesn't have an income tax. I say theoretically, we don't know because I think he still owns property in New York and New York is pretty aggressive on uh, saying, hey, you were here a couple of days, you're going to pay tax. But everybody pays tax. I always like to ask students, how many pay tax? And a few people won't raise their hand. Oh, I'm a full-time student. I don't work. I said, no, you still pay tax. You know, what about that textbook sitting in front of you? Right, right. You bought that, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. Matthew. A lot of the taxes that are collected, especially at the state and local level, are automatic. We don't see them when we're filling up our tank with gas or, or you know, any item of consumption. You're paying tax on that. Property taxes, if you're a homeowner, they're there. If you're a renter, they're probably embedded in, in what you're paying. So taxes are in many cases unavoidable, and the unavoidable taxes tend to be those, again, that fall on low and middle income families. We did a study a couple of years ago looking at undocumented taxpayers and trying to quantify the taxes they pay. And one of the initially surprising things was the fraction of taxes collected, other than the federal income tax, that are essentially automatic, that you cannot avoid, and that do not ask whether you're a citizen or not. The truly discretionary taxes, I think, happen to be the ones that fall most heavily on folks like President Trump, whether it's the corporate income tax, 
uh, taxes on pass-through businesses or the personal income tax more generally, again, to bring that back to the, uh, the New York Times study, what we're seeing is that if you have the means, if you have the professional tax advice, and if you don't have to worry about the IRS breathing down your neck or enforcing the law fairly, those taxes can be pretty darn discretionary. So yeah, uh, I'm sure the president pays tax indirectly every time his car gets the tank filled up, but we don't know what he means when he says he pays a lot of taxes. And uh, I've learned not to assign too much value to those statements, but <laughs> That's fair. I don't know what a lot means and I don't know what taxes means, but I would certainly not deny that he does, like every other American individual or business, pay taxes of some kind. I want to read you, um, this is from a Washington Post article of presidential tax historian Joseph Thorndike. A president is not like anybody else. They are the taxpayer in chief and the tax collector in chief. They are their own tax enforcer. And for that reason, Thorndike says there should be a law mandating the disclosure of presidential tax returns. Otherwise, there's really no way to be sure they're meeting their obligations because at the end of the day, the IRS answers to them. I wanted to read that quote because it takes President Trump out of the realm of just a person who has tax returns that bring up a lot of questions and a lot of concerns. It puts him in the position that he's currently in as someone who's representing us and that we at least theoretically hold presidents to certain standards. And I wonder if you agree with this statement and how you would like to see the president's tax returns handled. If you think about when we started doing this at the height of Watergate, when distrust in our elected officials was really at an all-time high, it could be seen then as a step towards rebuilding that trust. And I think it can still play that role now. It's embedded, of course, within a broader network of norms about how a president acts and speaks and, and behaves, virtually all of which have been demolished. So taken on its own, I'm not sure it's going to fix anything. Uh, Joe Biden released his tax return uh, today, as did Kamala Harris. And it's immediate to me from looking at those, both what that tells you and what that doesn't, uh, just as the New York Times story has limits in what it tells you. There's a lot we don't know based just on the data from the tax returns. But these returns do speak pretty clearly, as clearly as, as numbers can, about the priorities and the type of income and indeed the type of person our, our presidents are and our elected officials are. So I think it does offer value. I just think it needs to be embedded within a much broader web of trust uh, that needs to be rebuilt. Have you had a chance to look at the Biden and the Harris tax returns? And was there anything of note that you wanted to bring up? They both paid taxes. That's 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 a they, both <laughs> they both had a lot of income. Yeah, and, and, and I know there's there's financial disclosure forms they have to fill out, but I, I think all stands a review of is this the most helpful information? I mean, the New York Times is highlighting about how Trump has some significant debt coming due. I think it'd be helpful to know to who, because if this is someone he's negotiating with or if it's some foreign country, those are things that we would need to know. So I think it's also understanding their assets and their liabilities. And you can't get that off of the tax return. You can do some guessing, but any politician as a president, they are the chief tax administrator. They should be respectful of the system. This is something we all have to comply with. Um, your statements about, you know, like I'm too smart to pay taxes. That is just contrary to what the IRS would be about. It's about paying what you're legally obligated to pay based on the laws put into place by people who were voted into office. You know, he's the chief tax administrator. He should be saying positive things 
And if there's problems, you work with the lawmakers and the folks at the IRS to, to improve those. I mean, he has talked about, you know, a need to modernize the IRS. I'm not sure he's allocating enough funds to be able to do that. But as the chief tax collector, more positive statements should be made. And all elected officials should say that or point out, hey, here's where the problems are. I'm going to work to help fix those. All the news this week has started with the word Trump. But I think we need to focus more generally on how people like the president are able to abuse the tax system right now. This is not just about him. This is about the fairness of our tax system overall. It would be a shame if it got bogged down in in the politics. And the number one way we can fix this is not necessarily by changing the laws, but by enforcing the laws that we have already. That's the clear headline to me from this New York Times stuff is that the president and other people like him appear to be just getting away with stuff because they know they can. We need to get to a place where people believe the tax laws are going to be enforced. And the only way we do that is by adequately funding the IRS and not demonizing them. Thank you to my guests, Annette Nellen, professor in taxation at San Jose State University, and Matthew Gardner, senior fellow at the Institute on Taxation and Economic Policy. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on your favorite podcast channel. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.